Good morning. Welcome to Manhattan Press. I'm on staff with crew, and uh, my name is Samuel Cassing. Uh, it's one of the campus ministries over at K-State. And the elders have asked me this morning to, to preach from Jeremiah. And so we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 through chapter 4, verse 4. And so we're going to take a quick break from our Ephesians series, and we're going to hang out there. And so if you can start flipping the, the pages to Jeremiah or scrolling on your phone, I'll meet you there in just a sec. And so I want to ask you that this question this morning. Have you ever witnessed an argument between peers? Like a real, a real fight between good friends? I'm not merely talking Auburn versus Alabama, even though that might have been pretty heated in the Stanfield home yesterday. Um, but I'm talking about a, a genuine argument, one, one filled with vitriol and heat, right? Where you can feel the intensity in the room. It's, it's palpable. Where every comment, every statement is laced with pain. I'm talking about that type of fight. And have you ever noticed how those fights, they're almost always between friends or family members? Right? Rarely do you see a fight like that break out randomly on points here between strangers. It's usually amongst peers. Yet working in campus ministry over the last eight years has afforded me the opportunity to see many arguments just like this. But the most painful ones happen specifically between parents, particularly between parents and their prodigal children. I've oftentimes found myself mediating between the two parties, either in a public place, which is really awkward, like at a freshman orientation, or over a phone. And so I, I ask you these questions and to imagine these scenarios because as we step into Jeremiah 3 today, we're going to see something akin to that. We're going to see conflict between a father and his children. We're going to see the father pleading to his prodigal children because they've broken relationship with him. And that there's been a breach in the friendship. And so as we step into this passage today, that, that relational dynamic is really what frames it. It's the context for the, the pain, the brokenness, and ultimately the hope that we'll see. So we have Jeremiah, a prophet here of Israel, delivering a word from the Lord to the Israelites, who are actually not in exile yet, but they're going to end up there because of their disobedience. The Israelites had broken the covenant, they'd committed spiritual adultery, and Jeremiah is warning them that if they, don't, if they continue, God's going to discipline them as a good father. He's going to send them into exile. And so we get to listen in on this hypothetical conversation that Jeremiah paints for the Israelites. And we're going to listen to God pleading and pursuing them through Jeremiah's warnings. So let's read the passage today. Jeremiah 3, we're going to pick up in verse 19, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they've perverted their way, 
They've forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I'll heal your faithfulness, faithlessness. Behold, we, we, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we've sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If, if you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. The grass withers, the flower fades. Pray with me. Father, we come to you because you're a good father. You're glorious and just in all of your ways. And as your children, we come asking that you would feed us this morning from your word. That we would hear and obey your call to repentance. And that the words of Jeremiah would be a deeper part of our discipleship to you. God, please use this sermon to edify and, and build us up so that we can love you more fully and love our neighbors more faithfully. Amen. So as we get started, let me do some theological rearranging of the furniture in your head. Um, the, the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Isaiah are often misunderstood. I think this is for a couple reasons. Uh, the first is that many of us don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Right? If we're honest, we, we spend time in the Word and we're drawn to the Gospels or some of Paul's letters. They feel closer to us historically. They're easier to read. The, the instruction there is more straightforward, so it's easier to apply. So many of us just have a hazy view of the prophets because we don't engage the Old Testament that much. And so I just want to say explicitly this morning that you, you as someone sitting in the pew this morning, you can understand the Old Testament. And as a Christian, the Old Testament story is your story. Right? The faith of Abraham is, is your faith. So when we encounter the Old Testament, we have to remember that God didn't give us the scriptures to confuse us about his character or his plan. And that includes the Old Testament scriptures. So I say that in hope that as we walk through this passage this morning, you'll see how straightforward it is. And that it'll encourage you to engage with the Old Testament more in your, your day. And so the second reason I think that uh, many people misunderstand the prophets is because when we think prophet, we often think an angry messenger or a weird message, right? Somebody's angry because of sin or were teleported to some Sunday school classroom in a basement full of like felt boards with end time prophecies, right? And so we either have angry or weird in our mind when we think of the prophets. But 
uh, that's not actually the role of a prophet in biblical Israel. The, the primary role of a prophet in biblical Israel was that of a covenant lawyer. Right? The, the prophet's primary role was to bring God's case against the people of Israel. You see, God made a covenant with them, an agreement. And, and when his people transgressed that covenant or kept it, the, the prophets would come and serve them their legal papers, per se, whether good or bad. Right? If, if they obeyed the Lord, the, the prophet would come and bring a word that they'd be successful in battle or something like that. Or when they broke the, the covenant, right, they, would, they would come and bring a message of a covenant curse, a, a word of judgment. And so when we see Jeremiah preaching today, right, he's, he's not flying off the handle angry here for no good reason. And what's at the heart of his message is a, is a message of compassion. Because this message is being delivered on behalf of God, specifically the Lord. Right, you'll notice if, if you look at this passage, ten times Jeremiah refers to God by his covenant name. So in your Bible, it's, it's probably capitalized L-O-R-D, all, all caps, because this is God's personal name. It's the name he gave the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. Right, so Jeremiah is stepping in here, and he's delivering a personal message. But there is a tension here, because God's holiness and Israel's sin, they can't come together. Right, it's kind of like seeing your elementary school teacher as an adult, you're like, do I call you Mrs. Noel or do I call you Sherry? Right? You're left, right? Because there was this distance between you, but now you're technically peers. Right? That's somewhat like what the Israelites felt here. They hear this call from God, God's pursuing them, but they know he's holy. They know he's distant from them because of their sin. So they feel this tension. And so the opening verses here, it's really important because it's, it's these opening verses that really frame this call to repentance. And what we have to see is that the call of repentance is it's the call of the Father. Right? Look at verse 19 again. He, he says, I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a, a heritage, Right? That's a legacy. That's, that's something a father gives to children. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. You see, the, the call of repentance is the call of a dad. God isn't some distant deity waiting for Israel to get its act together before he begins pursuing them. And God wasn't waiting for, for Israel to have perfect obedience before he loved them. A, another prophet, Zechariah, he... In Zechariah 2, verses 8 and 9, he would describe God's love for Israel as if Israel was the apple of God's eye. He cherished them. He loved them. And this love, it's, it's a free love. Meaning, when you look at this passage, God isn't constrained to love the Israelites. They don't deserve it. He pursues them freely. He loves them. He, he's not a father who's, you know, a small business owner, and it's Black Friday, and he needs help because he's about to get slammed. Right? No, he's, he, this is the God who, who preserved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
This is the God who, who brought Israel out of Egypt. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is a powerful God. This is a self-sufficient God. And he's calling to them because he loves them. Right? This is the compassionate call of a father who's upset, who's angered with his children because they've rebelled against him. And he loves them so much that he's calling them to repentance. Right? He, he, he wants to give them their inheritance. He wants to give them himself. I mean, can you guys wrap your mind around this type of love? Right? This is a holy love. This is an amazing love. Have you, ever, have you ever loved someone so much that you just want to eat them? Right? Like, I love my daughter. I just want to eat her. Okay, like she, she's just adorable. Like Leslie looks at me, she's like, chill out. Okay, like, like have you ever loved someone with that type of intense love? Right, that, that's the type of love God has for his people, but it's, it's, it's greater than that. It's, it's holier than that, right? He, he doesn't just love a child, right? He, he, he's loving a nation. And not merely a nation, he's calling out to a nation that's in high-handed rebellion against him, a nation that's spit in his face. That is a, a holy love. And, and it's that holy love that's being spurned because of sin. Right? Because of sin, the, the, the call of repentance is necessary for the Israelites. Right? The, the call of sin is why repentance is necessary. Look at verses 20 and 25 again with me here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread these, but I'm going to try and put the emphasis on the different ways and the different depths of Israel's sin. Pick up in verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Right? A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. Right? Then, then look at how Israel sh should have responded, jumping down to verse 22, as they acknowledge their sin themselves. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Right? Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel, but from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth, even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Right? Israel had forsaken God. They'd stopped following them. They, they had created other gods with their own hands, and they were worshiping them. And, and what we see here is that sin was wreaking havoc on their relationship with God. And it's in the midst of this sin that God calls them to repentance. God calls to them like you or I would call to someone who we see about to step out in the traffic, but they're not paying attention because they're engrossed in their smartphone, right? God calls to them to call them out of their folly. And so what we have to see here is that, that sin, sin is real. It's as real as the pew you're sitting in. And it's destructive. It's, it's not imaginary. Sin is treacherous. Sin is adulterous. Sin is perverted. 
Sin is evil, and it exists in this world. And don't miss this, though. Right? God's making this impassioned plea to his people. He's not making it to the surrounding nations. Right? These, these are God's people who are struggling with sin. And you think that God wouldn't have to call them to repentance because they know they're in sin? Right? Like they acknowledge it in verses 23 and 25, but, but that's not the case because Israel was ensnared by their sin. They were trapped. They were blinded. Right? Their, their sin had literally destroyed their inheritance. It, it had brought them shame and dishonor. They were despairing because of their sin. Like earlier in Jeremiah, in chapter 2, Jeremiah would describe Israel's sin as as them running to broken cisterns, cisterns that can't hold water to, to parch their thirst. Right? It, their sin had left them empty. And so what we see here in this passage is that sin's a big deal for two reasons. Right? The first one is that it destroys people. Right? We, we see that when it destroys their inheritance and literally their sons and daughters. Sin destroys people. And it and the second reason, and this is the more foundational reason that sin is a really big deal and that God will not overlook any sin, is that sin is the rejection of God's law in word, thought, or deed. Right? Sin says that, that God didn't get it right and that God himself isn't right and that he doesn't have the right to rule this world. Sin's heinous because it, it violates God's law and his very character. So you'll see that all of God's people here, they're called to repent. Because sin is a heinous evil. And yet, here's the, the beautiful thing here in this passage is that, that sin doesn't have to be the last word. Right? We see here that the call of grace makes repentance possible. Right? Notice who initiates this call. The father does. Right? The Israelites don't get their act together and say, hey, you know, we're really messing up. We need to go pursue God. No, God goes and he gets them. Right? Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Right? It's really explicit there. It says, return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Right? Before they got their act together, God promises to heal them. Right? He speaks a word of promise to them. And we see it again in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where he says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, so not among thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right? Israel doesn't come to their senses here. And, and sadly, we'll see that if you were to keep reading through Jeremiah, they never come to their senses. God has to discipline them and send them into exile. But what we see here, though, is that, is that God is pursuing his people through the promise. And it's in the midst of their rebellion that God promises to heal Israel. Right? God doesn't want mere behavior modification from them. He wants heart-level spiritual transformation. Right? He wants the circumcision of their hearts. And he's promised to make good on that heart. He, he wants a people who are committed to him wholeheartedly and who are going to cause and bear witness to that life change. Grace is what makes repentance possible. 
It's God's gracious initiation with his people that opens the door to repentance. And as I said, sadly, we see Israel spurn this grace. And so as we step back from this passage and we begin to say, okay, that, that was a word to God's people in Israel. So what does this word say to us as God's people today here in, in Manhattan or on post? And I think the first thing that this word should say to us is that we must embrace the love and grace of the Father. We have to embrace that. Just like God initiated with the Israelites, he's initiating with us. Just like God promises to heal the Israelites' faithlessness, he promises to heal ours. Which means we shouldn't fear repentance. Repentance isn't a bad word. Repentance is a grace. It's a means by which we can experience the love of the Father. Right? God calls the Israelites to repent because he knows that the path to restored friendship with him only comes as, as the Israelites forsake their broken cisterns and, and they come to him for, for living water. Right? He knows that the Israelites could never earn their way back to him. And this is the wonderful news as as believers today, the, the wonderful news is that we know that God made good on this promise in Jeremiah. That, that there was a time where eventually a greater prophet than Jeremiah would come. Jesus. And Jesus would be the greater Jeremiah because he, he wouldn't merely bear witness to God's redemptive work. He would be God's redemptive work on our behalf. He would become, as Paul says in Corinthians, the yes and amen to all of God's promises. So in Christ, we can experience the fullness of the Father's love for us. Right? If you looked at chapter 4, verse 2, where, where Jeremiah describes the Israelite who's repentant and who keeps the covenant, who the nations would be blessed in, Jesus would become that man. He would become the true Israel. And so we must be a people who are, who are shaped by that love. We, we must be a people who are formed by that gospel. That, that Christ came and he lived and he died and that he rose again. And that he will return and, and that we can live in that grace. And so we got to learn to delight in that grace. Much like Travis delighted in the Cubs winning the World Series a couple years ago. Right, much like the Huff family celebrated the Astros, we've got we to gotta learn to, to revel and celebrate the, the grace of God. And, and that enjoyment, it, it should lead us to repent of our sin. Right, if the love of the Father is real, and it is real, it is, it is, then, then we must repent of our sins. But before we judge the Israelites for becoming hard-hearted, we've got to realize that that's our temptation, too. Right? A, a psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, he wrote a book in, in 1973, and, and the title was Whatever Became of Sin. And he chronicles how we've lost the word sin in our public life. And as Christians, we can't let that be true of us. We, we shouldn't be afraid of naming our sin because we're secure in the love of the Father, which means we can be brutally honest with brokenness and rebellion in our own lives. We can name our sin and we can repent of it. We, we don't have to make peace 
with sin in our lives. We don't have to lay down in our shame and dishonor like the Israelites did. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we've been seated in the heavenlies, as Brian preached on a month ago in Ephesians. So very practically, what's this mean? Well, this means we can't be like exotic pet owners with our sin. Um, you probably know these people, right? They, they own pets that can kill them, right? It's like a tiger or a bear or some snake that can either swallow them whole or venom will kill them in under 10 seconds, right? It's, I, I just think that's ridiculous, okay, right? Like if, if you have something in your house that can eat your child or the neighborhood kid who wandered into your backyard, that's a problem, all right? But we, we can't be like that, right? Like, I can just imagine those people justifying it. No, 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 no. I've trained the tiger. And I'm thinking, no, 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 bro. <laughs> it's a tiger. <laughs> okay, I don't care that you've trained it. Right? We can't be like that with our sin. But that's how many of us want to handle our sin. We say, well, we have it caged in the other room. Right? Or, I, like, I've trained it. I've learned how to manage it. Right? I, I only look at pornography every once in a while. I only flirt with him through text. It's not cheating. I, I helped him study for the exam. I, it's not stealing, technically. I, I don't use all of my work reimbursements. I'm not unrighteously angry at my children. I'm just frustrated. No. We're committing sin. Right? There's a tiger in our house, and we have to get rid of it. We have to repent. Right? There, there's not a square inch of our entire life that the call of repentance doesn't apply to. All of our lives, the entirety of our lives, must be submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Right? For the Christian, there's, there's no such thing as an unsanctified checkbook. There, there's no such thing as an unsanctified browser. There's no such thing as an unsanctified right foot. There's no such thing as an unsanctified tongue. There's no such thing as an unsanctified fork or spoon. There's, there's no such thing as an unsanctified bed. So whatever your sin is, right, whether it's gluttony, lying, stealing, resentment, bitterness, whatever flavor of sexual immorality, whether it's gossip or vanity, whether it's that uncivil or litigious spirit on Facebook or the vanity of striving after the perfect Instagram post. Whatever your sin is, you must repent. We, we must repent of it. We must turn away. And we must then turn from that to embody truth, to do justice, and to live righteously. Right, look at the beginning of chapter 4 again, right, where, where God calls them to return to him. And he says, remove your detestable things, right, repentance. Right, and then if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, right, turning towards goodness, turning towards God and his will for your life. And I'll give you two quick ways you can be the, the righteous here in Manhattan very practically. Here's the first. Be a good neighbor. Very practically, flip a coin. Heads, go knock on that door to your right. 
Teo, go knock on that door to your left. Let them know that there is someone in the community or on post that cares that they're there. Be the presence of grace and love wherever you're planted. And here's the second one. To be a righteous person, go to work tomorrow. Whether you realize it or not, one of the most just and righteous acts that you will do is that you go to work every day and do what God has assigned to you in this season of life. So whether that's a stay-at-home mom or a neuroscientist, whether that's teaching math or biochemistry, whether that's preaching or accounting, right? whether that's a military officer or a nursery worker, go to work and work as worship. Right? Be about your father's business. I'll give you a quick example of this one that I've heard recently. I have a friend in town, and he's, a, he's an officer over at Fort Riley, but he doesn't go to Manhattan Press. But he knows of a military officer who's a part of Manhattan Press. And he told me that this particular officer has a reputation on base for caring for his soldiers. He refuses to work them till their tongues fall out on pointless days because he acknowledges that they're people. That's this officer's reputation at Fort Riley because he, he is the righteous. He's living justicely. He's, he's embodying truth. Right? He's following the call of Jesus. And I guarantee you, he doesn't wake up thinking that's what he's going to do. No, he just wakes up and, and faithfully pursues the ordinary things that God has put before him that day. And so we must embrace the love of God. We must repent of our sin, and we must pursue righteousness. Right, that, that's what this word is for us today. So if I were to, to put this sermon in a sentence, I think it would be this. Do not fear the grace of repentance because Jesus is sufficient and he's calling you back to himself. Manhattan Press, let us be a people who are marked by repentance, who pursue righteousness, all because we're rooted in the love of the Father. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you call us back to yourself. We thank you that you call us through your Son, that we do not have to earn our repentance, but that you call us to come freely. We just praise you that we get to receive Christ's righteousness, that it gets imputed to us, that it literally becomes ours. We just thank you, Lord. We just ask that you would make us a church that's marked by repentance, that we would cling to you and not to our sin, that we would delight in your grace, and that on a daily basis we would forsake our sin and we would bear witness to your holiness and your goodness, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.